In a new age world filled with delusions and wish fulfillment by morons in need of attention, renowned experiencers of high strangeness and podcasters Jeffrey Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney received invitations to a tropical paradise getaway called Paratopia. Little did they know, it was the same type of new age spiritual retreat they've been avoiding all their lives. Uh, don't be shy. Americans are secretly indoctrinated into the occult, a la peanut butter sandwiches. Come on, you can shake it. Yeah. In Paratopia, everything is magical, except for our billing system. Anything goes at Paratopia. <laughs> and welcome. You are listening to 105.3 UPRN New Orleans. Except, as I think we've all learned, we're not actually on the radio, are we, Joe Montaldo? In fact, you're not listening to this, are you? Or else you would have addressed our concerns long ago. Long, long ago. Seriously, what's the deal with this? Paratopia, please give a warm welcome to our very special guest, Mitch Horowitz, author of Occult America, The Secret History of How Mysticism Shaped Our Nation. Mitch, thank you very much for doing the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, so, I, you know, I've got my first question here, which is probably the most rudimentary question. What is the occult? Well, the occult uh, is really refers to a, a form of spirituality that's considered hidden unacknowledged, obscure. The term occult comes from the Latin word occultus, which means secret. Uh, it doesn't mean secret in the sense of something that is kept away from people, but it means secret in the sense that you really have to work to get at it. It requires some kind of study or initiatory experience. It's not obvious, it's not easy, but it's all around us, and that's what occult spirituality is. And is it divorced from religion, or is it uh, somehow integrated into religious systems? Well, it can be a part of specific religions, but uh, traditionally occultism tends to uh, stand off on its own as its own separate culture. Uh, it believes in a spirituality that's not necessarily attached to any specific doctrine or congregation, but you can find lots of people who adhere to one of the historic faiths. In fact, it's very typical in America that uh, from the nation's history going way back, you had occultists who considered themselves Christians, but very often occultism will branch off into a separate spiritual culture. Uh, now, is that by is that by design of the occult, or is that by repression of the church that it sort of separates and branches off? Well, that's a good question. I think it's both. You know, during the Renaissance, there were lots of people who considered themselves Christians in Europe who wanted to convince church elders that occultism was not in any way anti-Christian, was not contrary to the teachings of Christ, and they worked very hard to bring a Christian language, even a biblical language, to occultism. But I think occultism, really, it, it, it's been a part of Western civilization, going back to the ancient mystery religions. It's, it's pre-Christian in many respects. Uh, it could be said to go back to the uh, Greek and Egyptian civilizations. So 
Traditionally, occultism has always stood apart from the religions. It's a spirituality that's not necessarily attached to any individual church. So sometimes there has been church repression of occultism, uh, historically speaking. Um, but traditionally, I think occultism, well, in many ways, it, it, it predates Judeo-Christianity, so it's not necessarily a part of it. Okay, so when you say that there's a secret history of it shaping our nation, uh, are you talking conspiracy? Are you talking just, you know, uh, sort of random bits and pieces throughout history? Um, is there a concerted effort for this shaping, or is it just sort of randomly by people who happen to be occultists but are otherwise not connected? Well, I would say, certainly, I, I don't mean anything conspiratorial by it. You know, when I use secret in the title, I'm referring to a history that's unseen, that's unacknowledged, that lies just beneath the floorboards. And in that sense, occultism has been just a tremendous influence on our country. So much of our view of spirituality and religion today uh, comes out of the occult. We expect, we as Americans, whether religiously liberal or conservative, expect that religion should be practical, should be useful, should be a kind of healing force. Those ideas entered American culture through uh, various occult and esoteric groupings and subcultures, people who were practicing things like mental healing and uh, telepathy and uh, various kinds of mind power mysticism, believed in this country that these things could be made into useful philosophies that folks from just every walk of life could harness to help find solutions. Occultism and progressive politics also grew up together in America. Uh, Freemasonry had a considerable and I think very positive influence on the founding of this country. Uh, Freemasonic ideals in the late 1600s through the 1700s um, embraced religious toleration, religious liberty, ecumenism. And in America, a vast supernatural movement grew in the mid-19th century called spiritualism, or talking to the dead. And the country was just swept with seances, medium trances, people gathered around seance tables. Most trance mediums in the mid-19th century were women. And in a very decisive way, that provided the first role in the modern world for women to serve as religious leaders, at least of a sort. And oddly enough, that helped open certain civic and political doors to women and gave uh, a, a, a tremendous boost of energy to the women's voting rights movement. You could not find a suffragette activist in the United States in the mid-19th century who hadn't spent some time at the seance table. So occultism has been like this mighty underground river in America. It's influenced our politics and it's influenced our religion. Yeah, I mean, it. it I guess sort of, well, I'm going to jump the gun on the question because there are probably several questions I should ask first, but I just want to get to this answer, which is, uh, how did it go from being sort of, um, you know, the the upscale thing to do in the 17 and, well, more so, I guess, the 1800s, um, to being the laughing stock of academia? What What's the disconnect there? Well, it's an interesting question. You know, academia has never understood the occult, and that's part of the reason why I wrote this book. Uh, most scholars of religious history will look upon occultism as some kind of an oddball social trend, almost a social pathology, something that may be understandable as a, uh, a, a reaction to the difficulties of life, but that needs to be um, analyzed, debunked, tucked away, and forgotten about. 
Uh, and that's a mistake. And it's a mistake because occultism has represented a religious impulse, a religious movement in this country that has been every bit as influential on American life as any new religion. We have lots of new religions in this country. Uh, Mormonism began in the 19th century. Seventh-day Adventism began in the 19th century. Christian science and all kinds of different intellectual movements that had religious backgrounds like transcendentalism. In order to understand who we are, we're very capable of looking at these movements, not getting too hung up on the question of are they real or are they fake, but we understand them as social movements. We need to do the same thing with respect to the occult. To just tuck it away like some crazy aunt in the attic is to not really understand who we are. When you turn on the television on Sunday morning and you see the most popular media minister in America, Joel Osteen, standing at his pulpit, speaking to millions of television viewers and dispensing a message of positive thinking, motivational thinking, using your mind as some... Uh, causative agent in the world. And to be sure, he's bringing biblical language to it. He's standing on the shoulders of American occultism. Those ideas uh, didn't just fall from the sky. They were ideas that uh, lots of folks in this country in the mid-19th century, particularly people who were involved in the mental healing movement, began to turn into a theology uh, in the mid-19th century. Many of them came out of England. Some of them were in upstate New York. They were working with European ideas like mesmerism or what people later started to call hypnotism or Swedenborgianism. That was a, a, a thought movement that, that came from a Swedish mystic and scientist named Emanuel Swedenborg. And uh, they were also imbibing ideas from transcendentalism. All this got wound together into this idea that the mind is causative, that the mind is some kind of an extension of the divine and can be used uh, to shape our lives in some way. This message began to migrate into the mainstream to the point where you find it just throughout all of America's religious geography today. You find it among New Agers. You find it among evangelical Christians. You find it at business motivational seminars. Um, it's really the software for all our self-help movements. Where did it come from? It came from American occultism. So when we don't look at the occult in a grown-up, mature way, uh, we, 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 we lose sight of some of our own roots as a nation. Well, when you say it came from American occultism, um, does, does that include theosophy? Oh, absolutely. I mean, theosophy was a movement that came a little bit later. Uh, theosophy was founded in New York City in the year 1875, also a hugely influential movement, because one of the key ideas of theosophy, and it seems rather tame today, but at the time it was radical, one of the key ideas of theosophy is that there, all religions are equal, to put it simply. There is a universality of religions. There is a universal brotherhood that unites people of all religious and ethnic backgrounds. Today that sounds kind of ordinary, but it was still quite radical back in 1875. And that way of thought, uh, you know, it accomplished many things in the country and in the world. It, first of all, it became a channel through which a, a certain religious liberalism um, began to grow and spread in America. It wasn't the only channel, but it was one very powerful one. It also had influence in unexpected ways. Uh, when uh, Mahatma Gandhi was a young law student studying in London in the late 19th century, he came in contact with theosophy. He wasn't interested in Hinduism. He wasn't interested in the religion of his parents. He wanted to become a proper Anglican lawyer. He comes into contact with theosophy, and he was very forthright about this in his letters and in his memoirs and his autobiography. And this idea 
that all religions emerge out of some sort of universal truth, all religions are equal, was extremely arousing to him, and it returned him to the study of Hinduism, uh, which, which really became the instigation for his uh, social activism. And it, 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 it helped him arrive at some of the radical egalitarian ideas that he grew into as he got older. He very specifically credited Theosophy, this occult organization that began in Midtown Manhattan in the year 1875, as moving him toward his philosophy of religious brotherhood, religious universality. So here you have an American occult movement that just, again, in all these unexpected ways, had far-reaching consequences, not only on the political mood of this country, but on other nations as well. Now, do you, do you I guess, personally believe that there's um, you know, anything magical to any of these uh, sorts of rites, or do you think that it is all um, uh, metaphorical for the ideas and the ideals that, um, that these people sort of, I guess, had to suppress at the time? Well, it's interesting. So, 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 do I believe that there's 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 something there beyond just just the philosophy of these ideas yeah. that they that they tap into something true? Um, my my deeply held philosophical answer to that question is sort of. I <laughs> I, I I wouldn't close the door on it entirely. Um, I I I think with any religious experience, there's a place where. Reason ends and faith begins, and uh, I'm not immune from that. I mean, there there's lots of chicanery on the occult. Uh, spiritualism was just pockmarked with fraud and con artistry, and it's important to be aware of all of that, and mainstream historians have done a good job, and rightfully so, of ferreting out a lot of that stuff. Um, am I a believing historian? Do I think that, 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 that these people had a piece of the truth? Um, yes. Yes. And how did you come to write this book in the first place? What sparked the interest? I began to notice um, a certain kind of attitude among American occultists that was different from, from, from how the occult developed in Europe. Um, the European occult tended to organize itself into hidden societies, secret societies. They liked um, conspiracies, hidden hands, um, uh, ranks and privileges that you had to go through different um, uh, tests and procedures to attain. European occult loved secrecy. It loved organizing itself into these exclusive little societies. The American occult was almost the complete opposite. American occultists, and this really goes back to uh, the dawn of the country and, and certainly throughout the 19th century, they wanted to evangelize occult ideas. No sooner did they arrive at some radical philosophy like mental healing or some kind of mind power mysticism or seances, talking to the dead, channeling. Uh, no sooner did they arrive at these ideas uh, or, or put their own imprimatur on them that they wanted to spread them. They wanted to throw open the temple doors. So very typically, American occultists would organize themselves not into secret lodges, but they would, they would want to turn these things into mail-order courses. Uh, they would want to turn these things into public schools. They would go on these vast speaking campaigns trying to attract people to these ideas. Mesmerism and other things like that got spread throughout America by all these public lecturers. They were like circuit-riding ministers. So the American impulse was always to want to uh, spread these things far and wide as practical solutions for daily life, uh, not to kind of keep them 
hidden, like some kind of sequestered knowledge that only an elite few could possess. So as I looked at this, I began to realize there was this whole different character to the American occult. And the more I looked, the more I realized that that is what really gave birth to the New Age, to alternative spirituality, and to many currents of uh, liberal and therapeutic spirituality as it exists today. These people were really influential. And I said to myself, that's the story I want to tell. Hmm. And do you, do you think that there is a, um, a, say, a kernel of truth that they all get to from occultism to mysticism to, you know, Kabbalah to any of the sort of higher echelons of religious mysticism? Um, or do you think that these are different paths for different states of consciousness? Mm, interesting question. Um, I think that, you know, I, I, I mean, different individuals seem to resonate to different ideas, just as different individuals resonate to, to different religions. I mean, I think they're all... I, I think they're all drawing for, uh, upon a common search. I mean, I, I think all human beings, at least all sensitive human beings, walk around with questions as to why we're here, what we're supposed to be doing here, uh, why should I not be just whiling away my life, eating potato chips and watching television? You know, what? why do I have four limbs and a brain? What's the purpose of my being here? You know, every sensitive person uh, is, is motivated in some way by that question. So, you know, so it goes for religious beliefs, a religious search. I, I, I think that uh, um, all religious beliefs, all occult beliefs, uh, when they're authentic, uh, draw upon that question. Okay, and so in terms of just how, how it's shaped our nation, well, how is it shaping our nation still? Is there still an occult thrust in uh, American, I don't know, politics or society that's that you could say is shaping our nation? There is, but it's, it's, it's become very domesticated. We don't think of it that way anymore. We don't look at it that way anymore. Um, you know, there were, there were so many ideas that, that today have become commonplace, or practices that have become commonplace, like yoga or meditation or acupuncture or some kind of attitudinal approach to success. You know, things that you just find everywhere, practiced by people who don't consider themselves uh, New Agers at all, but that entered the culture uh, through these arcane subcultures. And also, I think that occult beliefs uh, have always sort of pushed the margins of religious liberty in America, and that's been a very healthy thing. For example, the, um, in uh, the year 2007, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs uh, was sued by a consortium of military families who practiced Wicca, or what we would call witchcraft. And they said, look, this is our religion, this is our faith, this is our belief, and there was an a American uh, serviceman who was killed in Afghanistan, and uh, his declared religion was Wicca, and his family wanted him to have a pentagram on his uh, gravestone. And the VA said, no way. And so this consortium of, of Wiccan families sued the VA. The VA backed down and said, okay, we are prepared to recognize Wicca as an official religion. And if you are a um, uh, member of the military and you practice the Wiccan faith, you're, you can actually be given a funeral with full military honors, including a pentagram on your gravestone. And to me, this is all very helpful, not because, uh, you know, gee, isn't that strange that you can find a pentagram on military gravestones, but, but because it shows that we can continue to accommodate new religions in this country and live and function together successfully. And I think that is, in a way, one of the gifts that America gives to the world. And it's very precious, and certainly it's not something that all Americans value. But this idea that people can function together uh, successfully and well with radically different religious beliefs, 
it's 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 what continues to make America a source of inspiration uh, to various countries and people in the world. America is a source of frustration to some people. It's a source of inspiration to others. That quality of religious liberty is something that um, occult and radical religious beliefs have always tested the margins of in America, mostly healthfully. So I think that uh, America continues to be a kind of laboratory for religious experiment. We haven't changed. We've remained that. And in that sense, I, I, I think the occult or, 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 or beliefs that grew out of occultism have been a very uh, healthy agent. Mm-hmm. Hmm. How to frame this question? <laughs> I, I guess if, if we're going to allow that uh, there is a, a um, supernatural, well, maybe that's not even the right word, another intelligence, let's yeah. say, element to, to any of this, um, then what are we admitting to here? Are we saying that there um, there's another intelligence whose ideas or whose very fact of existence needs us in some symbiotic way to exist in this universe? I mean, is there something about them that needs us to to come through, to be important, to have meaning? Have you found anything about that? Hmm. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a shade of belief. It's an interesting idea. You know, I mean, you know, one of the facets of occult belief is this idea that some kind of another dimension or an invisible world or an afterlife exists parallel to our own, and that within classical occultism you have the belief that that other world, that invisible world, can somehow be tapped, can be contacted. You can contact spirits or you can channel some other being. Uh, the powers of that other world can act upon us, can act through us. You know, that's really the classical occult belief. Uh, is that real? Is that imagination? I don't know. You know, does that other world need us in some way? You know, it starts to get into questions of faith. I, I really don't know. Um, I think that... Uh, you know, sometimes when when you start to look at th- this kind of thing, you know, you just fall back on personal experience or you fall back on um, stories and anecdote. Uh, there are, you know, episodes in occult history that, 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 that really make one pause and stop and wonder, gee, you know, maybe there's something there. But my my perspective in the book is that even if there's nothing there, you know, even if, even if all this is just... Uh, um, grows out of somebody's fantasy or somebody's imagination. Occultism still represents uh, a religious perspective. It has a theology, it has an ethics, it has a, a point of view, it has a psychology, just like any other religious movement in this country. It's hard to hold religions up to the mirror of truth or untruth, you know, including the historic faiths. Uh, did Moses really part the Dead Sea? Did Christ really rise from the grave? If the answers to those questions were no, it wouldn't reduce the, the ethical weight of, of the Gospels, uh, or it, it, it wouldn't reduce the philosophical meaning that Judaism tried to bring into the world. So uh, my wish is to uh, ask, what was the religious point of view of the occult? What, what, or, or how did this point of view change over time to become one that we all share, in a sense? Uh, what ways did it permeate and change our religious culture? I want to look at it as a as a religious movement, and 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 I think the question of whether it's real or not real, you know, in a way that's that's the same question that faces all religious movements. That's true, except when you think of a cult, you think seance or you think um, sort of ritualistic, you know, things yep. that you could do to prove them out. Um, right. So, have you ever done any of those things to just prove them out to your own satisfaction? Mm. 
I've done them many times. Um, I don't know that I've ever proven anything out to my satisfaction. I, um, I, I am familiar, and I have used uh, a lot of different occult systems, because if you're going to... Um, if you're going to study this stuff, if you're going to be involved in this stuff, as you're saying, you know, there is a, 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 the occult is supposed to manifest something. There's supposed to be an experience there. And I, I, I know how to use many of these systems, and I've participated in a lot of this stuff. Um, there are times where, for example, I'll work with astrology, and I'll arrive at some psychological insight about myself or another person and I'll say my god this is remarkable and I'll feel that same sense of wonder and mystery that Carl Jung felt when he first discovered astrology and thought there's something there other times I'll 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 use astrology or another method and come up with absolutely nothing and I'll say to myself well which is it? You know, was it a fantasy the first time? You know, is there anything here? So, uh, but 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 I think what you're what you're putting your finger on is is right. You know, occultism has always made a claim to reality, to be practical, to be real, to actually be able to manifest something. And I think um, you know, what one can hold that claim up to proof or disproof, and 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 come up with different results. Um, what's interesting is that the occult perspective has become integrated into our world in a, a whole wide range of ways that that command credulity and command belief even if it's not um, the equivalent of uh, you know producing something that that's physically concrete you know for example many people to some greater or lesser extent would agree that our thoughts play some role in shaping outer circumstance in our lives. They're not dogmatic about it. It's just a point of view. Uh, many people believe that uh, there's a body-mind connection in, um, in health in some way. Again, it's difficult to draw the line. You know, how, how far do you take that? How far do you go with that? But it's just a general belief that's held within the culture. Many people walk around with the belief that they've had some kind of clairvoyant or precognitive experience at some time in their life. They've had a dream uh, that, that alerted them to something or that coincided with someone's death or with some tragedy. It doesn't necessarily change their lives. They don't walk around declaring, therefore, I'm an occultist. But it's, it's an occult point of view that people have, um, have come to accept without it being something that they try to test out or prove out every day. So you know, in subtle ways, in subtle ways. These things have, have worked themselves into our belief systems. Jeff? Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I, I think before I start asking Mitch anything, I have to make this comment about the, uh, the Wiccan soldier. Um, I mean, I think like any other soldier, we have to thank him for what he did for this country. But I, I have to say, it doesn't get a whole lot cooler than a pentagram on your tombstone. Yeah, well, um, you know, you should go to the VA website. You can see all the religious symbols that you're allowed to have on your tombstone, and it's it's quite wild. I think there's 38 of them. <laughs> I mean, I think it's kind of it's it's almost disgraceful that 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 they would fight that. I mean, you know, yeah. here's a guy here's a guy who died doing what he was supposed to do, and what his what his uh, what his mission was to do was to to go over there and fight this war, and they can't even. You yeah. know, take that into consideration. That just is ridiculous right. to me. 
And that's why they uh, backed down. You know, the VA, the Bush administration did not want this to happen. The VA did not want this to happen. They resisted these families to the point where it started to go into the courts. And then they backed down because, you know, you just placed your fingers on it. I mean, you, you just don't have anything to stand on. The man has served this country. He's, he's entitled yeah. to declare his religion. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Mitch, the first thing I wanted to ask you about was, was uh, the Chapter 3, um, which is Don't Try This at Home. Yeah. All about the Ouija board, which right. holds a special place in my heart because I grew up not probably 10 minutes from the Fooled household. Oh, no uh, kidding. Yeah. Um, and and I'm curious uh, about that because I, I had read long ago that, um, you know, William Fooled was the inventor. He was the man who discovered this thing and, uh, and basically that uh, – I, I think I had read somewhere that – he was actually in tandem uh, with a discovery that coincided with this being discovered in ancient Egypt, which in uh, your book, you completely dispel that as that's, that's a completely unfounded uh, premise to take with the origins of the Ouija board. Yeah. Well, you know, in the book, I, I, I'm dealing with so many different fantastic subjects that I, I try my best uh, to look at them and to write about them in ways that are verifiable. You know, I, I try to lay my hands on antecedents. I try to corroborate things wherever possible. And the, the, the best I could come up with with respect to Ouija was that it was a, a homemade invention among American spiritualists that was written about for the first time in the newspapers in the year 1886. It was a craze among spiritualists out in Ohio, and people made it at home using a carving knife and an ink brush. And um, there was a New York City newspaper that ran an article about this thing, which we now call Ouija, but which at the time was called the talking board. And they had this little illustration uh, of this talking board, and it's just the spitting image of the Ouija board. And uh, several years later, a group of toy manufacturers uh, in the city of Baltimore, William Fold hadn't quite yet come into the picture, this was in 1891, managed to get a patent on the thing. And uh, I think it was a man named Elijah Bond who came up with the name yes. Ouija, which is such a wonderful name. And um, there were years and years of patent litigation after that. It, it broke the Fold family apart in some ways because uh, William Fold and his brother Isaac were involved in patent litigation for probably three decades. It just dragged on, and it was very complex. And in the book, I, I question whether the, the, the board ever could have been patented to begin with, because it was really a, um, it was a, it was a folk belief. It was a folk instrument. It was a homemade object, uh, but it got turned into this really strange mass-marketed toy. It was probably uh, spiritualism's greatest triumph in a peculiar kind of way. Yeah, I mean, I was I was really surprised to see that that when the original idea came to the toy company that Fold was nothing more than a, a shellacker in that yeah. factory. That he wasn't yeah. even anyone even remotely associated with even the discovery of it in the sense of a folk discovery um, in that way. The yeah. the name, uh, which was what really kind of confused me, which uh, uh, I think somewhere in here it says that the it basically came out of the word yes in French and German, 
Right. And, and but then in other ways, you heard that uh, the board actually named itself. Where did right. that actually come from? Where did you hear or dig that up? Oh, there were just there are all kinds of stories. You know, during the patent litigation. Somebody might ask a question, where did this name come from? And you'd get five different answers, sometimes from the same person. You know, everybody had different claims and different stories. Where did the name come from? How do you even pronounce the thing? Is it Ouija or Ouija? Today everybody calls it Ouija, but it's it, uh, Ouija rather, but it's, 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 it's spelled so that it, it should be Ouija or Ouija. There's nothing clear about it. Everyone seems to have this... Um, uh, first of all, you know, you had about five different people involved in in right. the original patent and launch. Uh, each one of the five, you know, wants to be the general of the army. They all have their own version of how they were the ones who named it. They were the ones who came up with it. You know, everybody has mass amnesia and, and, and mass grandiosity at the same time. So there were all these different, <laughs> compla- you know, competing claims that came out in the newspapers and during patent litigation. So... It's, uh, it was all, you know, uh, there was a lot of competition. There were a lot of people who wanted to get their, their fingerprints on this thing. It was William Fold who was ultimately successful, and he joined the operation as a 19-year-old shellacker. He was a shop worker, but he was a very shrewd guy, and, and he maneuvered himself uh, into the stewardship of the company. Well, he, let's just say he wasn't too shrewd when it came to standing on roofs uh, examining flagpoles. because that that's, the truth. Yeah. How he fell off backwards after scaffolding of some sort apparently collapsed and he was killed. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, Ouija didn't tell him that was going to happen. So. Right. Uh, <laughs> I'm curious, though. I mean, we can't really deny the experiences that people tend to have with this thing. Uh, I mean, I've got one of my own. But yeah. uh, there's been a lot of people that um, either have these wonderful experiences, for instance, some of the, which you detail in your book, which is uh, poets and, and uh, writers that get entire novels out of this thing. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and then on the other flip side of the coin, we've got really horrifying experiences with this stuff, such as manifestations of things in the room or knocking, um, uh, horrible luck, sickness, uh, all of those kind of things. I mean, when we take this kind of stuff, when well, when science looks at this kind of thing, they immediately say, this is nothing more than an object that facilitates automatism. That's all it is. It yeah. is involuntary muscle movements. It is purely subconscious uh, stuff. You're, you are moving it. You just don't realize you are. Um, and, and the one thing that I want to say to this, and it's going to sound like a broken record, record to our listeners, I'm sure at some point, um, we we've kind of had a couple of shows on uh, hallucinogenics and uh, psychedelics, mm-hmm. and uh, Terrence McKenna is a name that gets brought up quite a bit on here. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I'm not sure how familiar you are with him, but oh, I, yeah, I'm familiar with him. Sure, his um, one of his most famous sayings is uh, is during some of his psychedelic experiences, he couldn't believe how he was. Uh, basically astounded uh, during these experiences, and how could he possibly be astounded by his own mind? Mm. Uh, therefore, he kind of alluded to, he thought that psychedelic experiences basically contained uh, the other, or the logos, or name it what you want, that there was something else there besides his own mind. Mm-hmm. And um, and I read, you know, in this book... Uh, that you've written about with with the Ouija board, it just um, 
I see shades of that kind of thing that it may be a subconscious uh, contact with our own minds. But the question is, is what's in there and is it only our minds or is it something completely different? Yeah. Uh, it, it raises uh, the question of what's in there, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because uh, you, you've got this tapestry of, of horrifying stories, really scary, weird, sometimes violent stories. And um, if this is just a uh, kind of auto-suggestion in the subconscious mind, uh, kinetically moving the thing, uh, unbeknownst to the individual, what in the world lurks inside of us? <laughs> because <laughs> nothing in this book uh, uh, gets a greater rise out of people than Ouija. People just constantly come up to me, people from all walks of life, ordinary folks, articulate, successful people, and they say, gee, you know, I don't know about this occult stuff, but boy, did I have some scary encounters with a Ouija board. You know, so it, it raises some very strange questions about us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and I mean, it, it kind of leads into the whole Frank Robinson story for me, because I look at things like Ouija and, and magical practices and all of, the, all of these things seem to, to depend on absolute confidence of belief yes. or, or focus of thought. And uh, when, I, when you start talking about, about a Ouija board and people are playing with that and they believe that they're talking to the dead, are they somehow manifesting the dead through intent? Mm -hmm. uh, or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and Frank Robinson, I'm reading this chapter, and I'm like, okay. And this guy is different from Rhonda Burns how exactly? You're right, uh, right, right. Because this is, uh, you mentioned Joel Osteen, who is another one who basically is, is on the shoulders of Frank Robinson. Absolutely, and, uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm very curious, you know, did... Was Frank Robinson the first guy to come up with this whole notion of the secret, quote-unquote, uh, no. or, or the power of that? No, he was, he was far from the first. There, there, were, there, were, there were people who had preceded him by several decades. And yet, I think Robinson was a guy who came up with this idea that uh, the mind had this magical faculty that the mind could shape out our circumstances. By the way, just for people who don't know, Frank Robinson was a pharmacist who lived in Moscow, Idaho, and in the 1920s, Robinson formed this mass mail-order religion called Psychiana, where through newspapers and magazines he would sell mail-order lessons, essentially in what we call the power of positive thinking. But he created this whole occult, mystical religion and theology out of it, and he was very successful for a period of time. Rob, the thing I love about Robinson, and he's really one of the people in the book for whom I have the deepest affection, is he was this very American figure. He was a kind of knockabout. He was uh, 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 an unsuccessful guy for much of his life. He had problems with alcohol. He was kicked out of the Army, kicked out of the Navy, kicked out of the Canadian Royal Mounted Police. Uh, he couldn't find his way anywhere in life. And eventually he settled into marriage and into a stable job and began to get his life together. But he was unhappy, and he kept asking himself, as many people do, is this all there is? Is this all there is? And just left to his own devices, just left to his own thoughts and ideas and experiences about what life was, he arrived at this idea of the, the mind power mysticism. He believed that God and the mind were the same thing, and that if you could properly harness and channel the mind, you could 
work miracles. You could shape outer reality. So he had a lot in common with what is called the New Thought Movement. He came from the same, his theosophy, his theology, his outlook on life um, uh, intersected with all the sources that went into the movie The Secret. But Robinson was kind of out there all by himself. He just came up with this by himself, working alone, uh, and, 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 and he created this whole theology out of this idea. And in a way, you know, he, he, he probably was one of the most influential purveyors of this idea because he engaged in mass advertising, he created these mail-order lessons, and he was very unembarrassed to say things like, religion should be a workable, usable idea, and our religion, Psychiana, uh, guarantees results or your money back. What other faith is willing to say that? And he would just make these audacious in-your-face statements with a complete lack of moral embarrassment. But it was beautiful because he, he, he said exactly what he meant. There was shrewdness in this man, but no guile, no dishonesty. You know, he had this way of speaking his, his mind in a way that would shock people and, 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 and arouse some sort of uh, anger or curiosity in them. And yet, really what he was doing was he was saying, look, I'm just being forthright and straightforward about all the things that the mainstream religions really want to say but are afraid to. I believe so much in these ideas that if you buy my positive thinking lesson plans and it doesn't work out for you, you know, I'll, I'll give you your money back. He was a combination of so many different American character traits. I think he was a guy who only could have um, uh, put together a religion and become a religious leader in America. He, 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 he was a, a man who was just completely out there on his own, who just decided that he had a workable view of life. And um, The Secret, Joel Osteen, Norman Vincent Peale, and The Power of Positive Thinking, all these things are expressions of uh, uh, what Robinson believed. They, they're all walking in Robinson's footsteps, even though they've probably never heard of him. Well, I mean, I think it's easy to see how how he could go out and say these things in public without any kind of remorse or, or thought about it, because he honestly did believe this. I mean, I, I get from reading the book that uh, there was nothing fake about what this guy believed he was doing or was able to tell people what to do. Right. Uh, he genuinely believed this was happening, and apparently there weren't that many requests for refunds either. No, apparently uh, not. <laughs> I mean, that's that says something, right? I mean, or not? I mean, well, people. I suspect people just didn't want to go through the trouble. But um, <laughs> he was. Uh, it's interesting, you know. There, there's always the temptation to compare a figure like Frank Robinson to a P.T. Barnum, but he was very different from P.T. Barnum because Barnum reveled in taking advantage of suckers. Barnum dared you to call him a con artist, and he enjoyed it. And he would say, "Well, sure, I am." But Frank Robinson, even though he was a shrewd marketer, and even though he was uh, an operator, he was a sincere guy. I think he absolutely believed his ideas. Uh, his output of writing was just enormous. He was constantly looking for new ways of expressing his philosophy, of verifying his philosophy. Um, he was a very emotional guy. And uh, people used to call him a religious racketeer. Um, they called him a... Someone called him a doctor of funk. He used to use the title doctor. Uh, too many American occultists uh, call themselves doctor in history. That's, that's been an, an embarrassing thing. But um, anyway, you know, he wasn't a religious racketeer in the sense that uh, 
you know, he was just sort of raking in, he, he wasn't raking in millions off of this mail-order empire and, and laughing all the way to the bank, so to speak. Uh, the surviving financial records, which I've reviewed, show that, you know, Robinson had uh, fat years and Robinson had lean years. He was losing money toward the end of his operation. And for the most part, he, he put his profits back into um, his company or his religion, depending on how you want to see it. Uh, he had a couple of kids. He lived in a fairly ordinary suburban home in the town of Moscow, Idaho. Drove a nice car, wore some nice suits, but he didn't live a flamboyant lifestyle. Uh, he was he was a true believer. We um, we've had a past guest on. His name is George Hansen. Uh, he George wrote a book, I guess, some time ago called "The Trickster and the Paranormal." And in that book, he details a lot about uh, marginality and anti-structure. And we actually did a show with him on those two topics. And I'm curious, in researching this book, how many figures you came across that you would basically categorize as somewhat marginal people. Mm. Uh, he, he said that he finds a constant in uh, paranormal events and, and people involved in the paranormal uh, that more often than not, I think would be his term, that, that he finds a lot of very marginal people. Uh, involved in this. Did you find that to be true at all? Less true in history, more true today. I do think that when people experience some kind of uh, sense of failure in outer life, they want to gravitate more toward an invisible world. Uh, they they want to find their way toward a philosophy that says, guess what? Outer life really doesn't matter. The truth lies sequestered behind this curtain, not in your relationships, not in your jobs. So alternative religious movements in the present do attract a lot of marginal people. I, I suspect that could be said of religion in general. I mean, people gravitate towards religion. People gravitate towards psychology when they're suffering. There may be people who feel a deep-seated need and search for meaning in life, even if they are successful in outer life, and that success may still leave them with some very gaping questions. But, but, but I, I think it's a truth that a lot of people who suffer failure in outer life gravitate towards religions, particularly these activist religions that um, seek to prove something, uh, that seek to provide some answer or some different way of life. Historically, in America, uh, I, I think things were a little different. There were uh, lots of successful people who gravitated toward experimental religion, who joined things like the Theosophy Society, who became involved in the mental healing movement. They may have had different needs and impulses. I mean, there were, there were things in the past that weren't getting satisfied for people. I mean, you know, the, the state of medicine in this country, as in Europe, was horrendous in the 19th century. Uh, it really wasn't until Johns Hopkins University was established in the late 19th century that uh, medical licensing uh, started to become uniform state to state. So in the mid to, to late 19th century, you had lots of people who were going to these backwoods doctors who would prescribe in some cases, very harmful things. I mean, some of these folks were still using leeches and mercury treatments. And uh, uh, so, so for some people, mental healing, for example, was a, a gentler and a less harmful alternative than mainstream medicine could be. So you have people in history who are gravitating towards um, occult 
or, 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 or arcane or marginal religious movements because there's something that they need in outer life that's not getting satisfied. Uh, today, I think more commonly, you do find people who, who, are, who are suffering or, or who are experiencing some deep dissatisfaction in outer life who are trying to compensate for that by gravitating toward the marginal. Do you do you see? Uh, and I, I think we have to clarify a little bit about where George draws that marginal line. In other words, the, the, I think the best example that he gave was you take a show like Ghost Hunters, and yeah, they they capture some interesting evidence and they uh, uh, they get some interesting data, and they seem to be somewhat skeptical of what they experience and what they capture. Mm-hmm. But they're plumbers, mm-hmm. and in the end, there's not a scientist among them, not even mm. a parapsychologist. Yeah, uh, and these seem to be the directions that the paranormal seems to take within all these uh, what what all falls underneath sort of occult uh, experiences of one sort or another. Yeah, uh, and uh, you know, I, I I think with this Ouija board in particular, that the fact that um, you know, it, it was born out of all this conflict and argument and, and, and litigation in courts for years and years between brothers. Yeah. Um, you know, it just says something about its weirdness to a certain degree for me. I don't know. Mm. Uh, do, you, do you think we're in the second age or the second coming of uh, spiritualism? Instead of Ouija boards and all of that, we've got our um, DVR recorders and our uh, electromagnetic frequency detectors and all this kind of... I mean, are we as steeped in it now as they probably were back then? I mean, it doesn't seem like you can turn on the History Channel, for God's sakes, and not hear a ghost story or see a, a documentary about UFOs or yeah, something yeah. of that ilk. I mean, it just seems to be all over the place right now. Right, right. I, I do think that we are in a kind of second phase of the new age i think we're in a uh, there's a new wave of spiritualism sweeping the country and the place that i actually find it um, is among channelers uh, spirit channeling is becoming so popular in this country that uh... It, it's it's really astonishing people are forming into these little uh... clusters and communities of belief around different spirit channelers and there are so many of them out there uh, they're just becoming countless. And some of the material that's coming out of spirit channeling, um, in my experience, is, is, is psychologically penetrating. It has something to offer. Uh, uh, other of it, I can't understand why anyone is interested. It seems to me very shallow. But, 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 but you know, there, 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 there are these higher and lower iterations of spirit channeling. And people are, are, are absolutely gravitating towards it. I think that uh, the uh, the next generation, um, the people who are young today, kids or teenagers, by the time they reach my uh, ripe old age of 43, are going to um, use terms like channeling with great frequency and are going to view channeling as some very uh, ordinary thing that they grew up with. Obviously, uh, there are going to be exceptions to that. I mean, people who belong to certain mainstream or conservative faiths would regard channeling as um, uh, an absolutely forbidden activity. But it's going on everywhere. And uh, people from different religious backgrounds, including mainstream folks, are buying books, 
um, buying videos, uh, participating in weekends at hotels where spirit channeling is going on. Some of the most popular New Age and self-help books right now are channeled books. But you can look way beyond the bestseller list, and I'm, I'm just constantly surprised by the number of people who go to individual sessions with channelers or belong to some small circle or community of belief around an individual channeler. So I guess all I'm really saying is keep watching that. Keep watching that because channeling is becoming so widespread that it's going to start to affect and change our culture. And uh, I don't have any vast conclusions to draw about it right now, but it is growing. And uh, I would encourage people to uh, just watch. Do you think it has a lot to do right now with the war? As you mentioned in your book, that all of these things seem to grow in popularity whenever we have a war. You know, again, I, I, I go back to one of my favorite chapters with the Ouija board that the, the sales during World War One, World War Two, really picked up because people were looking for either advice on, you know, is John going to come home? Uh, or, you know, to talk to John if John's already been blown to smithereens over in Germany somewhere. Yeah. Um, do you think that we're seeing kind of that same type of thing, that people are looking elsewhere for help or, or condolence of some sort? I, I don't get the impression that, that, that this explosion in channeling, because it's been, it's been building for a while now, is, is directly tied into the war. It's difficult for me to peg it to any particular set of current events. It, it reminds me of what went on in this country when spiritualism became popular. As soon as you had these two teenage girls in upstate New York, these were the Fox sisters who lived outside the city of Rochester, claiming that they could reach beings in the afterlife through these spirit rats. People were very aroused and excited that these two ordinary kids uh, could could assume the mantle of profit. And then other people wanted to do it, and more people wanted to do it. So there's this kind of um, there's this do-it-yourself impulse in American spirituality where people want to be in in some kind of direct contact with the divine or they want to be close to someone who is and there is this belief that this is possible and sometimes these beliefs you know as as you were alluding earlier uh, confidence and belief seems to be the prerequisite to all of this stuff sometimes meaningful Output, meaningful literary output will arise from this spirit channeling. And people uh, in this country, uh, in particular, seem to have this thirst and this hunger and this sense of entitlement that I can reach the divine, I can reach this other world, I can reach uh, some sort of beings from another dimension. So what I'm seeing right now seems to be a vast repetition of what went on in the spiritualist age. Now, you know, spiritualism went in, in, in very unexpected directions. It had political ramifications. Um, it, uh, for a certain period of time, commanded the attention of a vast, truly vast number of, of people in this country, including very mainstream people. Is that what will happen with channeling? I'm, I'm not sure if it'll, if it'll repeat itself along those lines, but it sure is going on on just a, a, a mass scale. And I've begun to notice a, a real uptick in it, even in the last five years. That's really disturbing. Jeremy, back to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, fun, funny you should mention it. I just put a link in our, um, uh, you know, as a sort of a joke in our website to Bashar, just saying, should I slit my wrists now? Because here's this guy coming to New York, claims to channel an alien, 
Yeah. Uh, puts on the most ridiculous voice and facial mannerisms you've ever seen to do this, and he's you know charging 125 bucks a pop to uh, to see him do this. It's like mm. wow, I am just in the wrong business. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> not too to, late. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I wanted to get back to um, to the history aspect here. In the yep. beginning, uh, was there ever a marriage between any um, sort of tribal um, Native American? I don't want to say shamanism because I know that's not the right word for Native Americans, but uh, medicine man, uh, spirituality, and the occult? There was always a funny arm's length connection between occult movements and, and, and Native American religion in this country. You know, um, um, certain Americans were fascinated um, with the American Indians and their spiritual beliefs, and they, 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 the occult never quite figured out how to integrate Native American spirituality. Uh, into its belief system. I mean, you know, it's 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 funny and it's tragic in a, in a way. You know, there was this region of upstate New York um, called the Burned Over District, which uh, is a part of central New York that runs between Albany and Buffalo. That in the early 1800s to mid 1800s was a place of just tremendous spiritual innovation. This is where spiritualism came from. This is where a whole slew of new religious movements grew out of. Mormonism grew up there, Seventh-day Adventism grew up there. It was a hugely influential place. But the fact is, uh, prior to the War of Independence, this particular region of New York um, had been home to the Iroquois Nation, and particularly the, uh, the Seneca tribe. So the Senecas made an alliance with the British uh, during the War of Independence, and obviously that didn't work out. So the colonial government simply used that as a pretext to push the Seneca off this land. So all this land gets open to new settlers. All these new settlers move in there. These are religiously liberal folks. These different occult movements and reformist movements and radical spiritual movements begin to rise up in this place. Well, they're all living on land that had once belonged to the Native Americans. So there's this fascination with this with the vanquished Native American, but at the same time, you know, uh, uh, this 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 group of settlers is is living on on land that had once belonged to these people. So, uh, you know, religious experimenters were were simultaneously destroying this culture, as all Americans were, while at the same time they were fascinated with it. So it's this kind of weird arm's length relationship. It's never resolved itself. You know, you have people today who will write uh, books. You know, people of of a kind of new age bent who are trying to incorporate Native American belief systems, and sometimes. You know, different different um, Native American communities are very hostile to this stuff, and they think, look, you know, we're not a museum. We're not here to to uh, be foraged through for New Age spiritual ideas. Other times there are more authentic expressions, but I think that's a schism that's a, it's, it's never been healed. Uh, cultism in the New Age has never uh, come to terms with Native American spirituality, um, and at the same time, you know, that, that spirituality has, has, has withered as uh, those cultures have been destroyed. So I don't think you find very much that is authentic in Native American spirituality uh, in American occultism. Although, it's interesting, in upstate New York in the 1800s, there was a folklore that uh, the area, uh, this area of central New York State called the Burned Over District, had uh, the, the local folklore held that it had once been home to an ancient tribe, older than the oldest Native American tribes, and the folklore went that this was a lost tribe of Israel, and um, it was believed that there were uh, buried treasures and artifacts in central New York uh, that belonged to this tribe. And this point of view was taken very seriously. There were uh, anthropologists and uh, 
different uh, scholars and different politicians who would speak in front of historical societies and very freely reference these ideas. Some of that folklore, some of that mythology uh, later reemerged in Joseph Smith's Book of Mormon, where he speaks of there being an ancient tribe that uh, fled Israel, came to America, uh, split in two, was ultimately vanquished. Um, so it, it's, it's interesting. You, know, you, you, you had this, this mythology around the Native Americans or some group older than the Native Americans in upstate New York, and um, not judging it one way or another, I'm, I'm, I'm not using mythology uh, to connote something that was made up, but just you had this, this tapestry of ideas around the Native Americans that later translated uh, in part into the Book of Mormon. Now, are we talking about Hudson Valley? Uh, the Hudson Valley was just below the burned-over district. I mean, you know, the, the two were joined. The burned-over district was really right through central New York between Albany and Buffalo, although the Hudson Valley, uh, you know, certainly extends up to Albany. So it, it, it had some of the same social trends going on. Wow. Well, there's another hour we could do. Uh, <laughs> let me ask this instead. Um, so... With with all of this going on, um, how is it possible that the witch burning trials happened at all? Oh, you mean in um, in in Salem? Yeah, I mean, why why did that even become an issue when like people are just sort of secretly occultists anyway? Yeah, it was an anomaly. You know, I mean, it, it didn't repeat itself much in in America. In fact, I mean, you had instances of mob violence in this country. Uh, sometimes breakaway religious movements were were harassed. Sometimes they were the target of violence. But Salem really was very exceptional in this country. I mean, you had a witch craze in Europe that went on for centuries, and God knows how many innocent people were killed. In fact, I think as late as the year 1782. There was a witch trial in Switzerland, which resulted in the beheading of a local housemaid who was accused of witchcraft. 1782 was very, very late in what was supposed to be the age of reason for that kind of thing to be going on in Switzerland. Um, Salem was a real uh, schism, was a real exception in America. You know, I think it, it grew out of local paranoia, poverty. The town of Salem was faced with very hard winters, crops were failing, there were Indian attacks. Whole villages could just disappear if they had a couple of bad farming seasons. That could be the end of those villages. And I think, you know, people people descended into a kind of mob violence. The victims, you know, it, 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 it's hard to say how these things become viral. Historians have all kinds of theories about these young women in Salem. You know, they were they had imbibed poison mushrooms, they were uh, suffering from epilepsy, they were bipolar. We really don't know, you know, what was it about these young women in Salem that first attracted this kind of mob paranoia and hatred. But one thing that, that can be said is that it, it was really the exception in America. That kind of thing never became a widespread craze, never, uh, the, the way that it had in Europe. Mm. One of the first things we talked about here tonight was uh, Freemasonry and how they brought some pretty good, well, ideals and perhaps values, moral values, into focus. And so it begs the question, wh why are they treated as if they're evil? I know. It's a, it's a very funny thing to me because I take a very, first of all, I take a positive view of Freemasonry historically, and, and today I take a very benign view of it. I, I, I mean, if you're interested in 
raising money for children's hospitals join Freemasonry because that's what they spend most of their time doing. Uh, they, they are engaged in philanthropic and charitable projects today. Uh, there's, there's nothing sinister or conspiratorial about that organization. So if you like bake sales, join Freemasonry. <laughs> but, <laughs> but Freemasonry in history um, was a, 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 a wonderful, radical movement that I think helped instill some real values of religious liberty early in this country's existence. Masonry was a thought movement that emerged from the Reformation. Uh, its, its origins are mysterious, and, and, and Freemasons themselves very sharply disagree over where they came from. But you find some of the earliest references to Freemasonry in, in diaries in England in the mid-1600s. And it was essentially a thought movement that declared itself ecumenical, uh, that said, uh, you can belong to this organization, you can participate in its discussions, in its philosophy, in its civic activities, provided you believe in a higher power, but there is uh, uh, no other religious requirement. And that sounds very ordinary today, but in the mid-1600s, when, when the Thirty Years' War uh, was going on, when Catholic armies were pitted against Protestant armies, that was a very radical point of view. Ecumenism was radical. So Freemasonry found influence uh, within the American colonies. It is a fact that a number of, of the founding fathers were Freemasons, not all of them, but some of the more influential ones. Uh, George Washington was a Freemason, Benjamin Franklin, uh, John Hancock, Paul Revere. And uh, obviously the founding fathers were influenced by a lot of different things. There were all kinds of thought currents coming out of the Enlightenment that influenced these guys. But nonetheless, Freemasonry was a personal affiliation, and it was an organization that espoused uh, religious toleration, uh, religious liberty, ecumenism. And uh, the fact that so many of the founders were affiliated with an organization like that is, is something that I think helped uh, establish these principles and these ideas uh, throughout uh, uh, colonial America. Uh, interesting case in point, in the year 1775, there was a um, British army garrison stationed outside of Philadelphia, and uh, within this garrison there were a number of Freemasons. They gave a charter to a, a local group of freed slaves to form their own Masonic Lodge, which was called African Lodge Number 1. It later became known as Prince Hall Masonry because there was a freed slave named Prince Hall who was the grandmaster of this lodge. Um, this lodge engaged uh, in the late 1700s in some abolitionist activities. Prince Hall affixed his signature to a couple of abolitionist uh, petitions and so forth. This became the first black-led abolitionist movement uh, in the American colonies, in the New Republic. And this was essentially a Masonic organization. So there were interesting ways that Masonry would uh, interject uh, liberal openings, liberal ideas into the American colonies. I think their influence, I think its influence was uh, entirely positive uh, at America's founding. I think uh, as the 19th century wore on, Masonry's political influence faded. Um, the public view of Masonry sort of soured in the early 19th century. There were certain scandals that made people fearful, probably rightfully so, that individual Masons had too much influence in the courts and in the legal system. So there was also an anti-Masonic movement in America in the 1800s. The ultimate outcome of this was that 
you know, by the mid-19th century, the glory days of masonry in this country were over. But early in the country's life, its symbols, its imagery, its heraldry, uh, and, 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 and certain ideals of religious tolerance and liberty um, uh, uh, came from, from Freemasonry. It was, it was absolutely a, a, a current of influence at the founding of the country. Hmm. And when you when you read the diaries of these uh, long gone masons, do you find any evidence uh, to support any of these sort of meta conspiracies about um, you know Knights Templar and Freemasons and whoever the Illuminati, whoever else, right, throw, them, right. throw them all in there, you know, <laughs> like hiding the Ark of the Covenant in some church in France or any of that sort of stuff? Do you see any evidence of that? And um, I guess sort of the next question would be. Do you see any evidence of a secret society that really does control and shape the way the world works? Uh, I, uh, the short answer is no. You know, you, you, you find very little that's dramatic in some of the early diaries and letters, with a few exceptions, and I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. You know, I mean, the, the difficulty of piecing together history and trying to do it for real, trying to do it in a way that's verifiable and, and, and pointing to a source or a letter or a diary where you got a certain idea, is that, you know, it's, it's like being on your hands and knees looking for a lost contact lens and saying, ah, wait a minute, there's something shiny over there in the corner. Let's see what that is. You know, it's so difficult to wrap one's arms around where a certain organization came from, when it started. You know, people didn't just write things down for the benefit of history and say, well, let's keep these lodge records all neat and put them in a public place so that 150 years later somebody can come and determine whether Thomas Jefferson was a Freemason. You know, not everything was written down very clearly. So sometimes, uh, you know, uh, you, you, you might find a, a diary or a set of letters that makes reference, just just passing reference to somebody having been inducted into a Freemasonic Lodge. There's a, a set of letters in particular that were written uh, by a man named Elias Ashmole, who was a, a British antiquarian, and um, I guess uh, you, you could probably call him a, a scholar of esoteric religious movements. And uh, he left behind a set of memoirs in, in which he makes reference in the year 1646 to being inducted into a Freemasonic Lodge. He says very little about it, but it's valuable. It's tremendously valuable because it is one of the, the very first clear written references, one of the very first unambiguous references that we possess to somebody saying, I was inducted into a Freemasonic Lodge. So that goes back to 1646. So it gives us a sense, okay, this was going on at the time. And Elias Ashmole, as I mentioned, he was an antiquarian. He was interested in esoteric religious ideas. He was interested in a mystical philosophy called Rosicrucianism. Um, he and some of his colleagues like to use an expression, the invisible college. Uh, you, you'll find that expression uh, presently in the new Dan Brown novel. Dan Brown writes about this invisible college. Um, some of them saw themselves as a thought movement that came out of Rosicrucianism. Um, Elias Ashmole and some of his colleagues uh, were part of the launch of the British Royal Academy, which was a very important movement in um, uh, Enlightenment thought in Great Britain. So you get a sense of, of, of Masonry's origins. You get a sense that, okay, these were some radical thinkers coming out of the Reformation. They were interested in mysticism. They were Protestant. They made some references to Rosicrucianism, which was kind of an interesting, somewhat shadowy mystical movement. 
They talk of being part of an invisible college. So they, they had some mystical leanings. They had some occult inclinations. Obviously, uh, masonry was run through with occult imagery at a certain point. You know, so you begin to get a sense, uh, you can at least piece together a sense that there were some mystical intellects present at the dawn of masonry. There may have been lots of other people present, too, who weren't as interested in mystical ideas, who wanted to belong to a civic organization that was outside of the authority of the church. You know, again, you know, this was a movement that was coming out of the Reformation in certain ways. So that's a long answer to your question, but what I'm trying to get at is you don't find references to conspiracies or hidden hands or secret plans. What you do is you get a sense that this was an atmosphere of a certain religious liberalism, a certain re religious radicalism, certain mystical interests, and you know you find this precious, precious reference uh, in the mid-1600s, and you begin to at least be able to piece together the world that, that masonry came out of, which to me is vastly more interesting and vastly more revealing than 10,000 uh, conspiracy theories. You know, I, I want to get on my hands and knees and try to find that contact lens. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, geez, you know, we're we're over time. I don't know how you feel about going on, but maybe I'll just flip a coin. Gee, do I ask the Nazi question or the Georgia Guidestone question? <laughs> I, mean, I, I guess I really like to know. I mean, we had on uh, that's the Nazi question. <laughs> that's the Nazi question. How did that shape and influence the American occult, or did it? I mean, it yeah. seems almost like that's probably around the time academia started to say, mm, all of this stuff is uh, we shouldn't pay attention to. You know, I, I go into this uh, in, in the book. I, I think far too much is made of, an, of a Nazi occult connection. Um, you know, Europe was just a hothouse of different political and religious ideas in the early 20th century, and these things spilled over into one another. There were people who were ardent Democrats and liberals who experimented in occultism, who were interested in theosophy. There were people who were uh, fascistic and violent, who also um, took an interest in these arcane spiritual ideas. Uh, some of the philosophies of the East, like Tibetan Buddhism, um, uh, some Chinese philosophies, were coming to light in the West for the first time. And so, you know, to some extent, um, Europe and America were, were looking at these things for the first time, and they just spilled over into different movements. Hitler did adopt this symbol of the swastika from the Hindu religion. It was a symbol of renewal, rebirth. Um, some of the fascist intellects around him probably did discover that symbol uh, for the first time in occult journals. These guys were not scholars of Sanskrit or Vedic culture. They were they were viewing this stuff through occult journals and pamphlets. Um, the Theosophical Society used the symbol of the swastika in a very benign way, but that they 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 probably served as the organ through which uh, early Nazis were able to seize upon that symbol. So it's not that the connections are not there; they are there, but they've been so exaggerated, and it, it, it has been. You know, all of this has, has been belabored really for entertainment purposes. And I, I think I mentioned earlier in our conversation that Gandhi himself was very forthright about having been influenced uh, by the occult. He later broke with the Theosophical Society. He was a very shrewd man. He knew how to take an idea uh, without becoming attached 
to an entire movement or organization. Um, and nobody's interested. Nobody's interested in Gandhi's more veritable ties to occult thought. You can actually um, pick up entire biographies of Gandhi that make no mention of theosophy, even though it was a genuine influence in his youth. And yet everyone is fascinated with these occult connections to Hitler, or these supposed occult connections to Hitler. And uh, it says something, there's something perverse about our fascination with, with the Third Reich. We, we take this prurient interest in the Third Reich. Um, everybody wants to know, was Hitler some sort of dark knight of occultism? Nobody seems to care one way or another that Gandhi, the, the, the greatest, uh, arguably the, the greatest humanitarian force of the 20th century, um, more veritably, more plainly, more obviously, a claim to have been influenced by occult ideas. It, 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 it says something about uh, um, the perversity of our own interests. Um, so, you know, I won't say much more about it here. I, I do write about it a lot in the book. There are lines of connection uh, between occult symbols and the Nazi movement, and the Nazis did get these things from someplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is a connection there, but it's been just vastly and, and, and absurdly overstated. And for uh, a person who really wants to learn about history and really asks himself, did these ideas have any veritable political influence, uh, a, a much richer place to dig is, is in the life of Gandhi. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting you say that. I didn't realize that about him. I knew his wife uh, was a big uh, follower or supporter of uh, Krishnamurti, Judah Krishnamurti, who oh, sure. yeah. was born of the theosophy and then essentially yeah. tore it down. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's rarely a mention of, of him in connection with even Krishnamurti. But I, I think the, the isn't the overall vision um, in terms of, you know, you're asking why, does, why do the Nazis get sort of pawned off on the occult and not Gandhi. Well, besides the fact that they, they, they dressed up like, you know, Darth Vader's army. Exactly, I guess one, exactly. One yeah. But, but the other uh, the other thing is that it seems that what is said about it is that they misinterpreted, or, well, actually, I can't remember his name, and, and you probably know it, The you know, one philosopher completely misinterpreted what Theosophy was saying about the new man, mm-hmm. and they all went with that completely racist misinterpretation Yes. That's really what they were going with. Yes. You know, Madame Blavatsky, the co-founder of Theosophy, wrote this massive work called The Secret Doctrine, in which she um, posited this alternative history of humanity and talked about the idea of root races, and, and she was interested in this concept of an Aryan race, some kind of a primordial original race. And lots of people have written about this idea of an Indo-European Aryan race, the variation that that took in Madame Blavatsky's work may have been where some of the early Nazis picked up this idea, and I, I write about that in the book. These guys were not uh, scholars. They were not reading deeply into Vedic literature, and you know, if there was a kind of um, occult literature of the day that came to their attention, they were much more likely to seize upon concepts um, uh, from that place than from 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 some other form of religious study, um, but if 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 you read Madame Blavatsky's work, which is something that that very few people then really did, and something that very few people today really do, you you find nothing to justify the exclusivity and the megalomania that um, that Nazi architects brought to these ideas. I mean, they they. They, they they would just seize on these things in a very childlike way, 
uh, in a very obscene way, and they would expound upon them with total imagination. But but the the, the, the source material was something that they they barely even probed. So again, you know, there 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 was a, a happenstance connection there. Um, but people who try to draw conclusions about occult philosophy being some seminal or even inevitable uh, aspect of fascist thought, I think they're 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 completely wrong. They're they're just um, they're over uh, they're 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 vastly overreading into the the mindset of of fascist intellects. They they are um, they're drawing connections where there was more an instance of happenstance. Mm-hmm. Mitch, usually when people get into studying or researching occultism or paranormal activity or anything like that, they've usually got a story. So don't make us beat you. Because uh, <laughs> we want to know how come. I mean, like, uh, have you had any sort of experience yourself that you cannot possibly explain that that kind of uh, lit the fuse for you, or are you not going to talk to us about it? Well, I'll share a personal <laughs> story with you. I mean, there 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 are probably several, but there's there's one that comes to mind from. Uh, must have been about 12 years ago. I'm the editor-in-chief of a, a metaphysical and New Age publishing company here in New York that's part of Penguin. And um, somebody had asked me to look at a manuscript that dealt with this mysterious nine-pointed symbol called the Enneagram. And uh, it's, it's a, a symbol that, that appeared in the West in the early 20th century. And there are some people who use this this very unusual-looking nine-pointed star as a typology of personality. It's a fairly that 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 particular uh, psycho-spiritual school emerged probably in the late 1960s. It's it's fairly recent. Not everybody uses the enneagram that way, but that is one way that it's used. So I began to read this manuscript. I was sitting on an airplane. I think I was flying back from Denver to New York City, and. I reached this point in the manuscript where I felt that I had um, encountered uh, what was supposed to be my personality type according to this nine-pointed symbol. Each one of us is supposed to be uh, one of nine basic personality types represented by this symbol. Anyway, as I began to read this material, I was absolutely overwhelmed with its accuracy, with its intimacy, with the the sense of realness that I was getting out of this manuscript. And I said to myself, my God, I I feel like I'm, uh, even though all of this is just kind of um, uh, a a generalized approach to people who are supposed to have these different personality types, I felt like I was reading material that was honestly more intimate and more revealing than what I had previously experienced in five years of psychoanalysis. And I thought, my God, there is some current of information here coming through this occult thought system that is more powerful than what I've experienced in all the psychological queries that I had made in my life up to that point. And it was an experience like that that led me to believe that uh, at least in terms of my outlook, there is some other current of information in our world. This uh, particular thought system that emerged out of that nine-pointed symbol, it held some truth for me. And I said to myself, there's really something here. There's something that goes beyond 
the ordinary forms of information that I've taken in in my life uh, through journalism, through academia, through psychology. And it was just a moment for me that made me stop and say, maybe there is something else out there. Wow. That's a great story. Uh, well, Mitch, look, thanks a lot for coming on and talking with us tonight. We really appreciate it. Um, once again, Mitch's book is Occult America, The Secret History of How Mysticism Shaped Our Nation. And we're going to have a link to that on our homepage where you can buy the book directly. Um, it's in bookstores everywhere, correct? Uh, yeah, it's, yes, sir. Oh, yeah. it's, it's definitely <laughs> sold at the mall this weekend. <laughs> and do you have a website that you'd like to uh, tell everyone about? Yes, my website is uh, MitchHorowitz.com. Uh, you can visit that website, and you can read a history of Ouija boards. You can read more about the mail-order prophet, Frank Robinson. You can read more about the book. Uh, it's just my name, MitchHorowitz.com. Excellent. Thank you very much, sir, for uh, coming on the show. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. This is Jason Offit, author of Darkness Walks, The Shadow People Among Us, and you're listening to Paratopia. Hi, this is Bill Burns from UFO Magazine and UFO Hunters. You know, there are several ways that you can get UFO, UFO Magazine. Magazine. Yeah, we know, Bill. We know, we know, we know. Just shut up. Just give us one way. Don't tell us you're psychic and, you know, give it 8,000 phone numbers and take 15 minutes of our time where we just want to hear the show. Just tell us how we can get UFO Magazine in one way. Okay, okay. Just go to www.ufomag.com. Subscribe online. You happy? Yeah, was that so hard? Actually, harder than you know. Eerie Radio, the endeavor for esoteric research and investigation into the enigmatic. Eerie Radio is a weekly podcast that features interviews with the world's leading paranormal researchers. Download episodes of Eerie Radio from your favorite podcatcher or directly from the show website at www.eerieradio.com. Eerie Radio. Listen. Learn. Laugh. So the Jeff. So. <laughs> Jeff, we'll get to Mitch Horowitz in a minute, but let's get to what's really important here. Um, <laughs> no, Mitch Horowitz being the guest was very important. That, that's important and all, but 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 we've learned something else about you here because you're mm-hmm. always like, why why come this is happening to me? I don't understand why high strangeness happens to me. It's like, well, I look around your room and your life, and I see occult paraphernalia, and I see your love of death metal. And I don't uh, and, death metal and stop. That, and now we and now we learn you lived a few blocks from the inventor of the Ouija board. Right. <laughs> right. How do, how would you not be a man of high strangeness? How 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 would you possibly live a normal life? I don't think it's well, possible. Uh, well, I, I mean, I was. Uh, I don't think it was that horrible. I mean, I think Lisa and I were newly married when we were. No, 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 no. We were dating. I'm sorry. I, I think it was one of the three or four times that she had uh, that she had come to my parents' house, and uh, I don't. I actually, I think I was in the process of moving out when I met my wife. I went on a blind date. That's how we got set up, and uh, I think I was in the process of moving. And she came over one night. We had dinner with mom and dad, and I had a Ouija board, and we were cleaning out the closet, and essentially came across this thing, and we were just playing around with it, basically making fun of it. I don't think we really 
treated any of it with very much seriousness at all. We were sitting on mom's bed and just playing around asking a bunch of dumbass questions. <laughs> I mean, if, if there is such a thing as treating something that you probably shouldn't be fooling with at all in a disrespectful manner, that's exactly what we did. <laughs> um, we didn't treat it very well at all. She went home that night. I went to bed. I woke up the next morning. I think, uh, and Lisa can probably testify to this, that it was probably one of the more sick times in my life uh, being ill that I had ever been. I mean, I had a raging fever, uh, headache, uh, the works. I mean, every possible ailment, you know, that comes along with a high fever, cold aches. I mean, I just wanted to die. And I was really laid up for about a week. I was out of work uh, for a week with that. And then I think it was sometime later after we were married, we were out gallivanting one night before we had a kid and went over to the bookstore, picked up a book called Ouija, the Most Dangerous Game by <laughs> Stoker Hunt. Stoker Hunt. That's right. It We've sounds, been trying to locate. like some childhood punchline to something, but it's not. It sounds it? like a NASCAR driver to me. I don't know why. Uh, but uh, we picked up this book and in it, I mean, thankfully, I, Mitch's book kind of dispels one of the things that Mr. Hunt had written about the Ouija board being somehow derived from an, uh, an escapade to Egypt where they found uh, something rudimentarily similar to this. But anyway, he, he does go on to document several cases where people are actively aware that fooling around with a Ouija board in a disrespectful manner or in a playful way can tend to lower resistance in the human body. And I just found that to be a really bizarre coincidence that, you know, nobody was sick around me. Mom and dad were fine. Everybody at work was fine. But yet I got drastically ill literally the next day after treating a Ouija board in a very disrespectful way mm-hmm. uh, and just goofing around with it. And, um, and ever since then, I think, I've, I think we, we, we treated it a lot more seriously after that. We still did uh, when we were at the condo. We played around with it one night. And uh, I think out of sheer boredom. <laughs> and uh, I, I remember somebody that Lisa knew said, well, you need to burn uh, myrrh or something like that while you're doing it because that's a protective uh, uh, compound of some sort. So we're like, okay. And uh, she, she gave Lisa some and we were burning it there. And, and yeah, the, the planchette did move. And all it said was no, and then practically went off the board, pointing to this burning stuff, this goo burning in this cup. Uh, <laughs> no, back and forth, no, back and forth. And I'm like, yeah, we're not getting rid of that. <laughs> and uh, and that we really didn't get any more activity yet. And that was the last time we fooled with it because Lisa will not go near it. And I'm not doing it alone. <laughs> so she wants it out of the house. Right now it resides in your room. Oh, good, good. Everything seems to reside in my room. Except me. Coincidence. <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting. You should mention Egypt. Um, I was surprised by how Egypt never came up in the entirety of this interview because anytime you see or read anything about the occult, it's always like linked back to Egypt. Like Egypt's got some secret hold on on all things uh, the Duat, which I guess they do. Um, but in any event, um, yeah, so... Well, we now never read the book. Did, does he make those connections? I haven't. I haven't looked at the book, folks. Um, I haven't. I haven't got through. Like I said to Mitch a few minutes ago before we 
that we disconnected with him. I haven't got awfully far, and I'm about halfway through. But you're liking um, what you're reading so far. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's it's not the kind of book that you're going to read for a bunch of scary stories. You're going to read about the research and the origins of these things and the people involved in uh, occult practices who are some of which were more or less originators of this whole movement. And I find that to be almost more fascinating than some of the phenomena, the, the actual people who yeah, were, were... Yeah, well, I mean, I'm going to pick up this book simply because I've read the Peter Lavendas of the world who do form yeah. these giant interwebs of conspiracy, and um, I want to see... <laughs> I mean, not that I don't know that it isn't true, because I do, because I, I just get the sense from reading it that it's overplay. But I want to see, you know, what a, sort of a level-headed approach to this is. I, I think that is sorely missing from an occult history of America. Yeah. Sounds like I mean, from everything he, he has said tonight that he's, he's got it, you know? I mean, I want to, uh, I just wanted to briefly go through what the chapter titles are. Um, you've got, uh, what is the occult and what is it doing in America? Uh, the psychic highway, mystic Americans don't try this at home. Ouija and the selling of spiritualism, uh, the science of right thinking, the mail order prophet, which was about, uh, Frank Robinson, uh, which, I mean, if you can read that, not immediately go, holy crap, it's the secret, <laughs> you know? I mean, I was like, ridiculous, you know? This is this woman just repackaged something and put it out there for sale, and again, multi-million dollar hit. <laughs> I, I would mean, like this- to know, you know, geez, I guess the one question we should have asked was, um, you know, which came first, the uh, oversell of uh, occultism and, and that sort of thing, or capitalism? Because it sounds like what he's describing is capitalism, um, in free markets uh, philosophy, um, yeah. But he sounds astonished that it's occurring around this. So, well, I guess I could do a little research on my own and just see when capitalism was actually invented. Or well, I mean, I think I think when you look at like like he said with the mail order profit with Frank Robinson, you're talking about a guy who wasn't real successful, wasn't real happy, and and to read the book, it, it goes into pretty good details. This guy just basically collapsing on his knees, and he, he says, you know. Uh, it, it, God, if I go to hell, uh, at least I'll go, you know, truly knowing that I sought to know what you and who you were. And at that point, he had a spiritual experience. He had a, a spiritual awakening of sorts, which he said he could feel through every fiber of his being, including something running through his veins. And uh, and then all of a sudden, it, it just became obvious to him that, I mean, you can call it the power of positive thinking. You can call it focused intent. You can call it whatever you want. Uh, and we've talked about that on the show before numerous times. Uh, and he basically just set out, uh, put an ad in the paper that uh, was comical when I first read it. Said, "I've talked to God. You can too. It's easy." <laughs> <laughs> and and amazingly enough, I mean, there were thousands of uh, uh, of replies to that ad, and uh, and and what, what amounted to back then a hell of a lot of money. He sold a, a rather large uh, thing that he home published and put together, and and told people how to do this, and got swarms of letters saying, "You've changed my life. You've changed. I mean, everything's turned around for me since I've been doing this." And it's not dissimilar from what people said about Rhonda Burns' Secret series. I mean, it's the same type of thing. Yes, a lot of people, as Mitch said, called him a kook, called him a fraud, all those kind of. He paid attention to it. He just went on and. I, I, you you get the sense from reading this book that this man absolutely believed in what he was doing and and didn't live high on the hog, uh, just lived his normal life. So I, it almost seemed like it 
might not have been wholly about money for him. It might have been about success or recognition, but I don't know that it was about money from reading this. Hmm. Um, I just uh, looked it up really quickly here, and um, you know, capitalism isn't really an invention so much as an outgrowth of various factors, but the father of capitalism is generally considered to be Adam Smith, um, who wrote a book about capitalism entitled An Inquiry into the Wealth of Nations, published in 1776. Mm-hmm. So it's all around that same time, right? That same time frame mm-hmm. that, that we're talking about where sure. everything is like, you know, America becomes or is about uh, taking all this stuff out of secret and capitalizing on it, essentially. Right, right. Um, well, anyway... As far as chapters go, the mail order prophet, go tell the Pharaoh the rise of magic in Afro-America. The return of the secret teachings, New Deal of the Ages, Politics and the Occult, which is a really great chapter in this book as well. Uh, Nine is the Masters Among Us, where we go into Gandhi and all of those um, things, the the, the, um, Indian spiritualists and stuff like that. Secrets for Sale. Uh, and number 11, the greatest mystic who ever lived in America. Guess who that is? Be, I don't know who. Ding, 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 ding. The ding, greatest ding, mystic? Um, well, geez, I, I, I don't know how he's defining mystic. I would say the greatest spiritual whatever, although born in India would be Judah Krishnamurti, but the greatest mystic is probably Edgar Casey, right? There you are. And Jeremy... What did you wager on tonight's? <laughs> I bet it all. <laughs> you went. Yes, Edgar Casey is detailed in, in in the final chapter, which is uh, I, I I don't know a lot about Edgar Casey. I know there's some people who are really into him. Uh, I've never studied much uh, about him, but uh, uh, most I've ever done is watch a documentary on History Channel about him. Seemed like a fascinating guy, but. Uh, Mitch goes starts the chapter off right into a story about a man who went to him and you know the progressive on uh, uh, until his death. So it's a it's a great book, man. I mean, it's it's um, and you'll recognize it right away because the cover is uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, has yeah. the all seeing eye pyramid from the back of your one dollar bill um, <laughs> on it, and uh, and along with the the Ouija board moon. Um, the satanic pentagram, the Ouija board moon. Uh, is that Saturn, Jeremy? There? I think that's the artist formerly known as Prince symbol. Oh, okay. No, I, I don't remember. And the, and the Masonic right. uh, symbol. So uh, along the bottom. So you can't miss it. It's a beautiful book. Hardcover. Worth the money. Go get it. Go get it. 